this morning. We're going to Genesis chapter 2 and also chapter 3. I feel like the Lord is continuing in a similar vein to how we ministered last Sunday morning. And I just believe the Lord wants to speak to us today. He wants to speak to us every time we get together. I believe that. But there are some times where uh, I feel a certain urgency or assurance more from the presence of the Lord, and I feel that today. So Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read one verse. Verse 25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for every soul that is here. And we pray today, Lord, that you would do a work in us, Lord God, by your word, by your spirit, by your anointing, Lord. Lord, as the Apostle Paul said, we do not come, Lord, with the enticing words of men's wisdom, Lord, but we want, Lord, our ministry to be in the demonstration of the spirit and of the power of God. And I pray, Lord, that your will would be done in this place today, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The period of mankind's history that took place within the Garden of Eden, sometimes referred to as the time of innocence. Not only was it a time where there was no sin, and there was no sinful nature, but there was also no awareness of sin. Adam and Eve were not conscious of really what sin even was. And the fact that Genesis 2 and 25 declares that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed communicates to us something deeper than simply the absence of clothing, the absence of self-consciousness. In that state of innocence, nothing was hidden from each other. Nothing was hidden from God. Not only were they physically naked, but they were completely and totally spiritually transparent. Nothing was hidden in the garden. But when they yielded to temptation, as we know the story so well, and introduced both a knowledge of sin and as well as a sinful nature, everything changed. Everything changed. They attempted to cover themselves physically, and they also tried to hide themselves from the presence of God. This morning we need to understand that this was greater than just a simple desire for modesty. What was happening in Adam and Eve's newfound understanding and what they'd become aware of was not just about the fact that their bodies were unclothed, but the choice to sin led to fear. It led to a desire to cover one's actions and to hide oneself from God. 
And this morning, the subject of my message that God has laid on my heart is this, the cancerous nature of sin. The cancerous nature of hidden sin. Amen. It seems to me that we live in a time when the occurrence of cancer is higher than ever before. I'm not medically qualified to explain the why and the how of that, but it does seem to me that we hear about people having cancer so much more than we used to. When I was a kid, it, it was there, but it wasn't something that you seem to hear about it so often nowadays. So many different forms of cancer, so many people that seem to get cancer in one form or another. There's very few people today that don't know somebody that has cancer or somebody that's afflicted by cancer or has lost somebody that was eventually lost their life because of cancer. It's a word that if we're honest this morning fills our hearts with fear. It's a diagnosis that nobody wants from their doctor. It's part of that, I believe, is the fact that it's often something that you cannot see the symptoms of, particularly early on. It's not like a broken arm or a bad back or some kind of problem that's visible externally. We can say, well, I can see your arm is broken. I can see you've got a problem with your back by the way you got up out of the chair or, or a problem with your leg because you're walking with a limp. Cancer so often, particularly in the beginning stages, we are ignorant of its existence. And part of that is why it holds such fear because we recognize that we don't always know until a blood test or some sort of a scan reveals certain markers within our bodies, we are ignorant of the existence of cancer. And the likely success of treatment has a lot to do with how early cancer is recognized and responded to. Different cancers grow and develop at different rates, different environments, but early detection, all of the doctors I think will tell you that early detection is very important. And that's why there are certain cancers that they very much encourage us to be checked for on a regular basis when you see your doctor, particularly when you get to certain ages and stages of life. And in doing some basic research on cancer, I will probably make some generalizations today. If there is any inaccuracy in that, put that down to the fact that I'm not professionally qualified. But in doing a little research into cancer, I learned about a process called angiogenesis. It's a nice big word. I'd never heard of it before. But angio has to do with your, the, the blood circulating through your body. Some people have an angiogram and they want to check how blood's going through their hearts. Genesis, we understand, or at least we should, speaks about beginnings. And so the process of angiogenesis is where the body produces new blood vessels as a part of growth. And we, we know that blood is necessary to be circulated through our bodies effectively for life and for growth. And so as our bodies grow, particularly through life, from being children to adolescence to, to adulthood, our bodies are, are producing and, and pro making more blood vessels to be able to reach all of our extremities. Obviously, the amount of the number of kilometers of, of veins and arteries in an infant is much smaller than a full-grown man. And angiogenesis is the process whereby your body produces more blood vessels. But what I found interesting was that cancerous tumors also need blood to grow. They need a source of life or they will struggle to grow. Their growth is hindered. But there are cancerous tumors, perhaps not all of them, but at least some that are able to produce components that promote 
angiogenesis. Or in other words, to try and make that as simple as I can, some cancerous tumors can produce things in our bodies that cause blood vessels to grow toward them. Desiring to be able to access both the life that is found in the blood, but also that network that accesses the rest of our bodies. We understand that our the, the, the veins and the arteries that run through these bodies are very much like a system of roads. There are larger ones and more narrow ones. There's small cul-de-sacs, but there's big highways, and they all work together for the effective distribution of blood and everything that blood distributes through our body. And I'm going to leave science alone from there. But all of this can be taking place in what appears, or at least initially appears, to be a happy, healthy, normal body. Most people, when they find out that they have an evidence of cancer in their body, want to do something about it immediately. I would. They want to start treatment. They want to have surgery. They want to change something in their lifestyle. They want to have the best chance of removing or at least seriously hindering that cancer from getting any further. There are others, unfortunately, however, and some of you may have known somebody like this, that although aware of symptoms because of fear, they will choose to ignore the possibility that this could be serious and will refuse to be examined or tested because they are afraid of possible bad news. Some people say, well, I don't want to go to the doctor because every time I do, they tell me something bad. And so they choose, rather than find out what's wrong, they prefer to live in ignorance. And that has a lot to do with fear. And the fear of cancer is understandable, at least to a point. But the results of failing to act promptly can be tragic. When Adam and Eve lost their innocence, they also lost their transparency and tried to cover their shame and hide. Their denial of any wrongdoing, or at least their denial of responsibility for wrongdoing, had terrible consequences that you and I are still impacted by today. Right now in our society and every generation since the garden, our hearts are guarded. We're not transparent. The deep things of who we are are secret away into a very secure place that very few people are ever close to actually being transparent in this life. If we're honest, very few of us are completely transparent. And there's a reason for that. Sometimes it's because of shame. Sometimes it's the fear of the contents of our own hearts. And so in an effort to hide that shame and, and not allow what we're afraid of to be seen, we sew our own aprons of fig leaves. We hide ourselves away. We deny responsibility for our own mess, pretending that all is well, that they don't need any help. Last week we ministered from Hebrews 4 and 12 that says, For the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is the discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. And we read about that. We read from that verse and discussed how God's word is so powerful and so alive that it can get right down into areas that you and I cannot even separate. But the next verse we did not read last week, which goes on, takes it a step further. It says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
the one that looks upon us. It does not matter how big your fig leaf is. It does not matter how hard you try. We are naked before Him and open so that He sees every single part of us. Amen. This does not speak about being able to see through our garments. It's not what it's talking about. But rather, it's much more than that. He sees the heart. The Bible lets us know that He is the only one that is able to try our hearts and to see what's going on in there. He sees the things that are hidden. He sees those things that we've got locked away in a vault. You see, they're open to Him. It does not matter what level of security you think you've employed to protect your shame and your fear and your guilt. God sees through every door. He sees through every safe. He sees through every veil and every disguise because everything is opened unto Him. No matter how much you've locked them away, as futile as Adam and Eve's fig leaves were, so are our attempts to hide from Him the contents of our hearts. As much as God said those fig leaves are not going to cut it, neither will your efforts to hide the contents of your heart from a living God. But we deceive ourselves. Job said, In chapter 26 and verse 6, he said, Hell or the grave is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. Even in the pits of hell, God can see every detail. Ecclesiastes 12 and 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There are no secrets with God. You can't talk to God and say, Can I tell you a secret? Because odds are he's going to say, I probably already know, but go ahead. Lord, can I let you in on something? Sure, tell me. Like somehow he didn't know what we were about to open his understanding with. A long time ago, a man by the name of Hans Christian Andersen wrote a story called The Emperor's New Clothes. Some of you have heard it. Some of you have read it when you were children. It tells a story about two con men. That's really what they were. They were pretended to be tailors, people that made clothing. They pretended to be the very best. And they came to the emperor's nobles, to his rulers, and ultimately to the emperor himself, and and offered to make the most amazing clothes that there were. Beautiful garments that nobody had ever seen the like of. But but they came, and they went through this charade, this pantomime of, of holding out cloth when there was no cloth. That they acted like they were holding and they said, this is very special cloth and only the wise, only the intelligent, only the best of people can see this cloth. But there was nothing there. But everybody that came to see the cloth heard that only the intelligent, wise and noble people could see it. So they all went along. Oh, yes, it's wonderful. It's the nicest cloth I've ever seen. Feel that fabric, feel the quality, the patterns, the weaving. It's it's beautiful. And everybody went along with this acting and this charade because nobody wanted to be the stupid person. Nobody wanted to say, I can't see anything. Because they'd all been told, oh, only the very best of people can see the cloth. And so this, this, this pretense went along. I'm sure that every night when the two tailors went back to the hotel, they probably were in fits of laughter. They had all of the rich people and all of the leaders buying into this con. And the process goes along and finally they say to the emperor, your new clothes are ready. And they they make this big fuss of fitting him and measuring his arms and his waist and his legs so that everything was just right. 
with the best clothes he's ever had that only the best people could see. And so this whole trickery continues until finally the emperor goes on a parade and he's walking down the main street of town. I don't know if he was naked or in his undergarments. I don't remember the detail from the story, but he's walking along believing, at least partially believing or hoping to believe, that he's in the nicest clothes that everybody's ever seen. They're carrying the, the umbrellas, the, the shade over him as he walks along and the, the public are all lined up along the street. And everybody knows the story. These, only the best people can see this clock. And so nobody says anything. And as he goes along a little further, finally a young child, in the honesty and openness that only children seem to have, said, he's not wearing anything. And everybody said, well, yeah, actually he's right. And in the story, even the emperor heard the young child and realized that he wasn't dressed, but carried on to finish the parade because he didn't want to lose face. Everybody thinks the emperor was a fool. We all do. You read that story and think, oh, what a sucker. <laughs> How stupid did he look walking down the street in his underpants? <laughs> what, a, you know, what a loser. And we think that he was the fool. But often as humanity, we parade around with sin in our hearts covered only with man-made fig leaves and God sees us as naked as the emperor. Who is the fool? Bless the Lord. When we hide sin, or at least we hide it from others, in our hearts, we bear a weight and a pressure that comes from holding that secret. We bear that burden and we cannot rest well. We don't have peace because we're troubled. Because we know what we're hiding away. We know what's locked away. We're constantly nervous about slipping up and exposing the contents of our hearts. One lie covers another and then another and then another. And that secret sin eats away at our minds and our conscience and we cannot get rest. And yet in the midst of all of this, we think that we're living out of our own free will and doing the things that please us and make us happy when the reality is that as long as that secret is locked away in our hearts, you will have no joy. You will have no peace. Like the person that refuses to be tested for cancer. We delay the correct treatment and we allow that malignancy time to connect itself to our life source. We cover it well, everything seems good, but like a cancer, hidden sin grows unseen. The outward observer passes by and everybody seems okay, but within the heart and the soul, there is something that is growing, that is taking hold, that is gripping us. Sin has an angiogenesis all of its own. Unattended, it actively seeks for a way to grow, for a way to sow the seeds that will give it access to your soul. And we convince ourselves that we've gotten away with it. We sew together our fig leaf aprons and we think, I've got away with this. Nobody knows, but the whole time we're naked before Him. We parade down the street like proud fools, like the emperor. Hebrews 3 and 13 says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
Sin is deceitful. It is not up front. It tries to find other ways to get in. It tries to find a back door, an open window, something that's not closed properly to come in without us recognizing that it's moved into our lives. It is deceitful. And as long as we continue to subscribe to its lies, our hearts become hard. It's what the scripture says. It says, don't let your heart be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, when you first sin, your conscience is troubled. It's almost as if your conscience begins to rub against your heart and you feel that sensitivity. But over time, you ignore it. Over time, just like in our hands and our feet, a callus forms. A hardness comes. It's not overnight. You know, when you've got calluses from hard work, particularly those of you that work in manual labor, they don't happen overnight. But it's over a period of time of taking something that was soft and pressuring it against something that is hard. And over time, that softness builds up a resistance. And before long, there are calluses. If you've ever shaken hands with somebody who's a, a bricklayer, there's a couple of men I know in the church on the East Coast, and every time I see them at conference, I have to brace myself to shake their hands because they've got hands that feel like they're made out of stone. They're hard. And they grip your hand and you smile and you say, Praise the Lord, brother. And you go and get prayer for your hand. Because their hands, not only are their hands strong, but their hands are unfeeling because they've been hardened over time. What happens with sin is if it is ignored once, twice, five times, ten times, layer upon layer of callous begins to form on our hearts. It's not instant, but little by little we become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But all this time as we become hard, secret, hidden sin attaches itself to your soul and silently and steadily takes a stronger and stronger cancerous grip upon the very source of our spiritual life. David is unfortunately a terrible example how he allowed sin to come into his life. He made the choice to take that first sinful action and then from there he began to hide. He began to cover up. His heart hardened at a very quick rate. He went from adultery to murder and denial of any problem. When the prophet Nathan came in before him, David stood there self-righteous in his own made fig leaf apron. And Nathan said, this is the story I want to tell you. And many of you have heard it since you're in Sunday school of how the prophet said there was a certain man. He was rich. He had a great number of flocks, many sheep. He had a neighbor who had one little lamb and that lamb was like a child to him. He held it in his arms. He fed it like one of his own children. And the rich man had visitors come and rather than take from his abundance... To feed his guests, he took the poor man's lamb. And David was so hard and so blind that he didn't even see his own heart. And he said, surely that man deserves to die. And that old prophet, probably feeling a combination of anointing and fear, put his finger in the king's face and said, you the man. It's you, David. And instantly all that callous was torn. And the sensitivity of David's heart poured out and he began to realize how he'd hidden that sin away. God is merciful. God is gracious. 
and he's long suffering to us but not willing that any should perish hallelujah our pride will not allow us to submit to the examination of the master heart surgeon and so we continue in the parade naked with our shame on full display nobody likes conviction I don't like feeling conviction if you do there's something wrong with you nobody likes to feel conviction nobody likes the feeling of having your heart laid bare of having your sin exposed of finding your way to an altar to repent of hidden things God has revealed in our hearts nobody enjoys the beginning of that process but if we are willing to bring our hearts to him to attempt transparency with everything that is within us I don't believe in this life we'll ever have it like they did in the garden but we've got to try to have transparency before the Lord the operation that he performs may be a little painful there may be tears involved. There may be things that need to be made right. There may even be things in our lifestyles that have contributed to that cancer that we need to get rid of. But when the surgery is done, and when everything is taken care of, and the surgeon, as it were, spiritually sews us back together, and we hear him say those words, we got it in time. What joy. What peace to know that it's been cut out, to know that it's been removed, that God, the only one, that physician who operates without hands is able to reach into my heart and remove that cancerous growth and to close it up and to give me newness of life again. What joy and what peace comes when you let God operate on the hidden things of the human heart. Hallelujah. And as a good surgeon should, he says, I want you to come see me regularly for checkups we don't want that to come back again come see me often let's make sure the markers aren't returning let's make sure those signs and those symptoms aren't there let's keep the heart clean and healthy and whole hallelujah oh let's just lift our hands for a moment I feel the spirit of the Lord oh Jesus God I pray Oh, God, I pray. Jesus. 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 Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The seventh chapter, the book of Joshua. Again, another well-known story from the Old Testament finds the people of Israel having just won a supernatural victory over the city of Jericho, this fortified city that nobody thought could be broken into. The power of God brought those walls down through the obedience of his children. And God's power was definitely on show that day. But there were very strict instructions that were given to the Israelites that day when they went into that city. The commandment was any of the gold, any of the silver, any of the valuable things, you are not to take them. They are not yours. They belong to the Lord. Very strict instructions. But as many of you know, there was a man by the name of Achan. While he was in the battle, in a moment of weakness, foolishness, whatever you prefer, he saw some silver, saw some gold, saw some fancy clothes, 
and in a decision that would cost him more than he realized, he took them, somehow secretly got them back to his tent in the camp of Israel. And the Bible says that he buried them in the ground in his tent and then went on as if nothing had ever happened. Came out of his tent with a smile on his face, closed the door, carried on like nothing had changed. A little while later, after the armies rested and refreshed, the next town that they decide to conquer was a little place called Ai. And that's how it's spelled, Ai. Ai. And Joshua sends in some, some scouts, and they come back, and they say, Joshua, don't worry about sending the whole army. It's just a little town. Just send a small force, and we'll just, just be a bump on the road. We'll clean these guys off and move on to the next big challenge. And so two or 3,000 soldiers go to Ai, thinking that it's going to be a walk in the park. It's an easy victory. God's, look what God did at Jericho. This place is just a roadhouse. But the Bible says that the men of Ai came out against them and gave them a hiding defeated them quite savagely and 36 men of Israel lost their lives that day and they all came back and they were distraught and confused and wondered what had gone wrong and why after such a great victory they couldn't beat just a small town and Joshua did what all of us can do when we make a mistake he pointed his finger at God and he went lay on his face before God he said God why have you abandoned us why have you let us down we why have you done this what what's the deal God what's going on and if you read it in a more modern kind of a language, the Lord says to Joshua, get up off your face. Stop sulking. Stop crying. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. This is on you. So this is not my doing. He said, it's your doing. He said, there's sin in the camp. Somebody took something that was accursed and has brought it into the camp. And we know what began to happen. But there was something I hadn't noticed before in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 13. If you want to turn there with me quickly. And the Lord says to Joshua, it's an internal problem with you people. It's not on me. In verse 13 of Joshua 7, the Lord says, Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. So the process of elimination, God was going to reveal the guilty party. And it shall be that he that is taken, verse 15, with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he hath wrought folly or foolishness or destruction in Israel. I didn't really realize before, maybe you have, but Joshua told Israel about the sin the night before. They knew that in the morning they were going to go through them one tribe at a time one family at a time, one tent at a time, until they found out who it was. They had notice. It wasn't a surprise inspection. They were told, this is happening tomorrow morning, be ready. Be ready. You know, it's interesting to me that God didn't reveal to Joshua the identity of the guilty party. He told him the sin, but he didn't say who it was. God could have told him the whole thing from the start. I don't know if that means that Achan could have repented. When I read the scripture, I tend to think that it was too late for that. 
But for some reason, God did not reveal the identity of this man to Joshua. But Achan knew that he was the guilty party. Achan knew that in the freshly dug earth of his tent floor, there was an accursed thing that he had brought into not only his house, but into his people. And it had cost the lives of three dozen men. Because of his actions, 36 families lost a father if they were married men. And I believe they probably were to be soldiers. 36 men died. What a night that must have been for Achan. Knowing that in the morning, the guilt, the fear, the shame plaguing his mind. I don't think he slept a lot that night. He wondered what the morning would bring. And so in the morning, in verse 16, you can read it yourself, the Joshua rises up and everybody's brought together and through a process, they go through tribe by tribe and they eliminate one group down to a smaller and a smaller group until finally it gets down to Achan and he is challenged and he confesses and he says, it's buried in the floor in the ground of my tent. And men run and bring it, dig it up, bring it to Joshua. And here it is. And the judgment of God is poured out upon Achan. In verse 25, Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor, or trouble, I believe that means, unto this day. Opinions vary amongst commentators as to whether or not it was Achan who died that day or Achan's whole family with him because at least under the law children didn't die for the sins of their parents but it's hard to imagine that they were innocent when something was buried in the family tent it's not not likely that when dad was digging a hole in the middle of the family house it was a tent it wasn't a five-bedroom house they were all in this tent together, and so I, it would seem his family were at least participants in his guilt. Whether that was the case or not is not really the issue. But by the time that Achan stood before Joshua that day, the damage was done. You see, there's something about sin that the more you try to hide it, the more it begins to accelerate. When sin is hidden, it seems to give it a license to pick up momentum, to gather speed, to intensify, to strengthen itself. And it wants to consume us. And if it is not repentant of, there will come a day when if we do not repent of those hidden things, that God will judge us for them. And no matter how hard you hide, no matter how good you think your fig leaves are, no matter how well you think you can conceal things, the prophet Amos wrote, In Amos chapter 9, he was talking about Israel's unfaithfulness. And he said, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. And he said, smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. He won't get away. He that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and I will take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword and it shall slay them. 
and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts is he that touches the land and it shall melt. And all that dwell therein shall mourn and it shall rise up holy like a flood and shall be drowned as the flood of Egypt. God is love. Same God. Because when we hide sin, when we hide sin, we really have no excuse. He's provided redemption. He's provided forgiveness. He's provided grace and mercy. And when we stumble, He restores. When we fall down, He brings us back. He lifts us up. There is no excuse to try to hide from Him, but the devil whispers in our ear and we become fearful and we become afraid and we want to hide ourselves and make excuses. That is not the will of God. But hidden sin like a cancer takes a hold and begins to grow and tries to attach itself to our life force. I'm not wanting to focus too hard on cancer, but many of us have known somebody, have lost somebody because of cancer, and the person that is at the end of that illness is just a shadow of the one that was healthy and whole once upon a time. That's the physical illness, but spiritually, the same thing can happen. We begin to shrivel, as it were, before our eyes. David said in Psalm 51, if you would stand with me, Sister Stanker, if you would come. David said in Psalm 51 and 6, he said, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part shalt thou make me to know wisdom. Bless the Lord. Bless. God led me to minister about the state of our hearts last Sunday morning. He's followed up with this message today, so I know that God is speaking to us. This is not about exposing murderers and thieves and criminals. But this is about encouraging us to be transparent before the King of Kings. To recognize that sometimes there are things we lock away that we're even capable of forgetting about until the Lord brings them to the surface and says, let's cut this out. The devil says, don't, don't do, do it. It'll hurt. It'll be painful. You know you're only going to go back to it anyway. Why, why cut it out? But the Lord says, let me worry about that. Let's get it out now. Because if we go back, the Lord, I'm coming back for a checkup. Some of you may know there are things you need to make right this morning. Some of you may just want to check up. God, I'm coming back. Examine me again, Lord. Run some tests. Hook me up to whatever machines I need to be hooked up to. Lord. Examine me. Check my life source. Check my spirit. Check my mind, Lord God. Don't let there be anything hit. We don't have the innocence that Adam and Eve had, but we need to strive for transparency. Say, God, search me. Examine me, God. Get it out while it's early. Get it out before it takes a hold of my heart and begins to sink its roots down deep and the pain is greater. Don't let my heart become hard. Ministering about the cancerous nature of hidden sin this morning.